Welcome to this special presentation of the unabridged audiobook of Afterlife, a rainy day investigation on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs fiction podcast. Afterlife was inspired by a real-life investigation conducted by co-author and parapsychologist Lloyd Auerbach that was the case that made him believe in ghosts. Although Afterlife is book two in the series, you can enjoy it as a standalone story. However, you'll likely also want to listen to Near Death, the novel that introduces Dr. Jennifer Day, anthropology professor and parapsychologist, to her skeptical partner, former police detective Nate Rainey. In Afterlife, Danny, a young boy, makes friends with the ghost of a woman, Maureen, who used to live in the house his family has moved into. He's the only one who can see and hear her. Maureen died 15 years earlier, trying to make her escape from a botched bank robbery, at which time she hid millions of dollars in cash and valuables. Unfortunately, she can't remember where, but that's not going to stop her old partners from doing everything they can to find their long-lost treasure, no matter what the cost. If you enjoyed this free presentation, I hope you'll take a minute to post a review on Amazon, Audible, and Goodreads, as well as your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to listen to Near Death, along with my weekly short stories, here on Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs. And now, Part 2 of Afterlife, A Rainy Day Investigation. Chapter 1. San Francisco, Present Day. Dr. Jennifer Day guided her Volkswagen microbus through an upscale neighborhood on the outskirts of San Francisco. The sun was setting. She peered over the top of her cat-eye sunglasses at the house numbers as she slowly navigated the tree-lined street. Dr. Day was a tenured professor of anthropology at Cal State East Bay, but this evening she was conducting an investigation beyond the normal bounds of her field. The pendant she wore around her neck, the Greek letter Psi, was a symbol representing parapsychology. She had a passion for studying the paranormal, both in connection with anthropology and also as an investigator of various Psi phenomena. Whenever her activities were mentioned by the press, she was invariably labeled a ghostbuster, a comparison she didn't shy away from. She used it as a point of reference to describe how her work differed from the exploits of Peter, Ray, Egon, and Winston and their proton-pack-powered adventures. In the passenger seat was her undergrad intern, Emily Vargas. Where Jennifer tended to stay with earth tones in her usual outfit of a light turtleneck paired with tweed slacks and punctuated with bright red Vans shoes, Emily was a study in black, from her hair and heavy eyeliner to her baggy t-shirt, jeans, and black leather boots. Are we there yet? Emily asked in an impatient monotone. Should be. We're on the right street, I think. Emily sighed. Tell me again why you didn't bring Dave. Dave Edwards was Jennifer's graduate assistant. He normally accompanied her on preliminary investigations. But tonight she could tell his reluctance was more than his usual default protestation. He had been making progress on research for his Ph.D. thesis, and Jennifer decided not to disrupt his momentum. So she recruited Emily to join her instead. Dave is working on his dissertation, and when he graduates and moves on, I'm going to need to rely on you even more. He'll never graduate. He likes being a student too much. Emily was usually pretty good at getting out of things she didn't want to do, but Jennifer was better at getting people to do what she wanted. In this case, the immovable object gave way to the unstoppable force, though Jennifer suspected that Emily was not as resistant to joining Jennifer as she let on. Why didn't you bring Detective Rainey? Emily asked, somewhat rhetorically. 
Nate Rainey was a retired police detective Jennifer had teamed up with in hopes of making her paranormal investigations more of a business rather than a hobby. Their partnership seemed like a sure thing, especially after all the publicity surrounding a 60-year-old cold case they helped solve in which the spirit of a wrongly accused man helped them catch the real killer. Nate, nonetheless, was a confirmed skeptic and didn't credit anything but luck and good police work with cracking the case. It was also the reason she didn't usually involve him in the preliminary investigations. The few times she had persuaded him to come along, he spent the whole time shooting down any suggestions the incidents were paranormal in nature. Although they still hadn't gotten any high-profile cases, Jennifer was an optimist at heart. She knew it was just a matter of time, and hoped Nate had as much patience as she did. There it is, Emily said, pointing to a large gray house surrounded by walnut trees. Jennifer almost missed the driveway. She slammed on the brakes. The contents of the van shifted noisily, pressing against the curtain separating the rear compartment from the passenger area. What did you bring? Emily asked. I thought this was just a preliminary interview. Be prepared. That's my motto, Jennifer answered. Isn't that the Boy Scouts motto? They lent it to me for the week. Jennifer turned into the driveway and approached the house. A woman appeared at the front door and stepped out onto the porch. Dr. Day parked the van and turned off the engine. Do I need to grab any gear? Emily asked. Jennifer reached through the part in the curtain and pulled out a medium-sized case. This is all we'll need. She handed it to the intern. Emily climbed out, dragging the case with her. Jennifer waved to the woman waiting for them. Mrs. Young, I'm Dr. Day. She looked to Emily, who was lugging the case. This is my assistant, Emily Vargas. Hello, Mrs. Young said. I wasn't sure you'd make it in time. She glanced at the rapidly dimming sunset. It usually happens just after sunset. Please, come in. Mrs. Young held the door open as Jennifer and Emily entered the house. The living room was large and filled with stylish furniture. Emily found an empty spot to set the equipment case and opened it up. Jennifer noticed that there was a pile of bedding on one of the chairs. Thank you so much for coming, Mrs. Young said. It's been getting worse. Tell me what's been happening, Jennifer said, approaching the nearest sofa and inviting Mrs. Young to join her. When did it start? The older woman sat down, perched on the edge of the sofa as though prepared to leap up and flee at any moment. She took a deep breath, briefly glancing upward. It began the first night we moved in. We were so exhausted and stressed. I thought the noises were just something I was sensitive to because we were in a new place. We moved from New York City, where it's noisy all the time. Gerald said we'd have to get used to a whole new set of sounds living in the suburbs. She smiled meekly, as if embarrassed to have such a high-class problem. When the noises happened again the next night, I knew the footsteps were not coming from outside. Footsteps? Jennifer asked. They sound like footsteps to me. Gerald thinks they sound like someone tapping. The first thing we did was look around the house to see what it might be. There were several branches from the walnut trees close to the house, so we had someone come by and trim them back. But the noises continued, Jennifer guessed. Yes, Mrs. Young replied, nervously clasping her hands in her lap. I know it sounds silly, but I'm at my wit's end. I don't know if I can spend another night in this house. It's not silly at all, Jennifer assured her. Do you know if anyone died in this house? Emily asked offhandedly. Mrs. Young gasped. Jennifer shot her internal look. Emily shrugged. Don't we usually want to know stuff like that? Jennifer addressed Mrs. Young. It is something we consider. What do you know about the history of the house? 
just the basics, when it was built and such. I do remember Gerald jokingly asked the real estate agent if anyone had been murdered here. He thinks he's amusing. Had there been? Emily asked, ignoring another warning glare from Dr. Day. Oh, goodness, no, Mrs. Young declared. We never would have bought the house if something like that had happened in it. Maybe no one knew, Emily suggested. Did you have cadaver dogs check out the yard? They can smell if there are any bodies buried out there. Oh, my, Mrs. Young exclaimed. Emily, do you want to wait in the van? Jennifer pointedly asked. No, replied Emily. Is it possible there are dead bodies in my backyard? The older woman asked. Jennifer placed a reassuring touch on Mrs. Young's nervously clasped hands. No, I'm positive. They could be in your basement, Emily added. I saw the show on the Discovery Channel where this guy had, Emily, perhaps since this is your first time filling in for Dave, maybe you should just observe, Jennifer suggested. Fine, Emily conceded. She pulled out her laptop and started typing notes. The undergrad was very intelligent, and Jennifer saw a bright future for her, if not an anthropology, than anything else she set her mind to. But Emily was prone to speaking her mind in an unfiltered way, just like Jennifer. It was a trait which had gotten her into a lot of trouble, both personally and professionally. Jennifer turned to Mrs. Young, who was growing visibly more anxious. We did a thorough historical check on the property, she said. If there was anything to be concerned about, we would have found it. The older woman cautiously breathed a sigh of relief, but still seemed nervous. She checked her watch and glanced at the large front window. It provided a view of the sunset and rapidly approaching dusk. Jennifer sensed Mrs. Young's unease. This is the time you usually hear the footsteps? As soon as it gets dark, she replied with an emphatic nod. Jennifer looked at the ceiling, then over at the staircase that led to the second floor. I'd like to take a look upstairs. Can you show us around? I suppose, Mrs. Young replied tentatively. Normally, Jennifer would arm herself with a few sensors that measured magnetic fields and other environmental metrics to try to get a baseline for the house. She decided to forego them this time to focus on helping the homeowner feel more at ease. Jennifer rose from her seat and waited for Mrs. Young to follow. Emily rose as well, setting aside her laptop and grabbing a camera. She looked at Dr. Day, then moved her fingers across her lips in a zipping motion, promising she would keep her thoughts to herself. Jennifer led the way, climbing the stairs slowly, listening carefully, but also taking in the classical architectural features of the old house. The ornate banister, topped by a dark walnut rail, looked to be carved from a single piece of wood and curved elegantly to the second floor. There was also a stunningly crafted crown molding, wetting the flat off-white paint of the ceiling, to the delicately textured wallpaper. When they reached the landing, Jennifer paused and looked up and down the hallway. A long runner covered most of the hardwood floor, and half a dozen or more doors stood closed. Which one is your bedroom? Jennifer asked. Mrs. Young pointed to a door towards the end of the hallway. Jennifer began walking slowly in that direction. The homeowner followed closely behind. The window on the far wall revealed how dark it was getting outside. They approached the bedroom door. Mrs. Young opened it. There was a carefully appointed bedroom featuring a perfectly made king-sized bed and a pair of ornate dressers. While Jennifer and Emily took in the room, Mrs. Young glanced nervously at the ceiling. When was the last time you slept in here? Jennifer asked. Mrs. Young seemed surprised by the question. I noticed you have bedding downstairs. I'm guessing you might be trying to be as far away from whatever's going on as possible. 
I'd feel the same way, Jennifer said. About a week, Mrs. Young confessed. I couldn't take it anymore. I told Gerald I was going to move to a hotel if you couldn't get rid of him. Him? Emily couldn't help but ask. It sounds like a man's footsteps to me, so that's how I think of it. She looked upward once more. There's a man pacing in the attic. Gerald has checked several times and insists there is no one up there, which doesn't reassure me at all. How do you get up to the attic? Jennifer asked. There's a door in the hallway that leads up there, Mrs. Young replied, pulling an antique key from a pocket. Gerald thought I would feel better knowing I had the only key. Jennifer looked at the brass key in Mrs. Young's palm. She could hear the voice of her skeptical partner, Nate, muttering, You can find a skeleton key like that at any flea market, and anyone with a paperclip could pick a lock that used a key like that. But she was sure that the locks on the outside doors to the house were not guarded by 19th century hardware. Let's take a look, Jennifer said. Mrs. Young seemed surprised by the request. There was a fear behind her eyes that grew stronger the darker it got outside. The sunset was now just a soft glow on the horizon. She led Jennifer and Emily from the master bedroom down the hallway to a narrow door. She inserted the key into the old-fashioned lock and turned it until there was an audible click and stepped back without opening it. Jennifer reached out and turned the knob. The door opened outward, and beyond it was a narrow staircase leading up into the dark. She pulled out her phone and switched on the flashlight. Its bright light illuminated the exposed rafters of the attic at the top of the steps. She turned to Emily. Let me have the camera. You don't want me to go up there with you? Emily asked, a little disappointed. No, stay downstairs with Mrs. Young. Set up one of Bit's omni-sensors. Okay, Chief, Emily said with a mock salute. Jennifer ignored her intern's not-so-subtle rebelliousness. She started up the steps. Each one seemed to squeak at a different pitch as she climbed up into the attic. She heard Emily reassuring Mrs. Young that Dr. Day had done this thousands of times and not to worry. The attic spanned the entire width of the large house. Jennifer saw a pull chain hanging and gave it a tug. A bare bulb lit up the space, casting eerie shadows behind boxes and unused furniture. She wondered if it was the property of the Youngs, or if it had been left by the previous owner. A fine layer of dust covered the floor. There were footprints, likely left by Mr. Young, centered under the attic light. It didn't look as if he had ventured very far past the top of the stairs. Jennifer used the light from her phone to illuminate the dark corners that the bare bulb from the ceiling didn't reach. She noticed rodent feces in some spots, which wasn't uncommon in a Northern California attic, but she doubted the scurrying of a small animal could be mistaken for a man's footsteps. Upon closer inspection, she spotted a trail across the floorboards from whatever creature had taken up residence in the attic. There were multiple tracks, likely the same animal moving back and forth between its nest, and whatever opening there was to the house, probably an uncovered vent. But there were also wobbly broken lines traced in the dust. A rat's tail? Jennifer shivered at the notion. She wasn't afraid of encountering anything paranormal. Actually, she hoped she would. But rats were one fear she shared with Indiana Jones's father. As unlikely as it was that a rat was responsible for the sounds causing Mrs. Young so much consternation, it was the only lead she had so far. Emily, I'm going to stay up here for a while, she called down the steps. Close the door for me, will you? Ten four, boss, Emily replied. Jennifer searched the attic for a chair among the furniture. She found an upholstered dining chair, wiped off the dust in the seat, and set it at the end of the animal trail that led to a pile of boxes. 
Then she pulled the chain to turn off the overhead light, sat down and shut down her phone's flashlight. Next, she turned on the camcorder, switched it to its night sight mode, and positioned it so it faced the attic before her. Then she folded the attached screen against the body of the camera so its light wouldn't interfere with her observations. Once the room became dark, she noticed a red light on the camera creating a surprisingly bright glow. She covered it with her thumb, and the attic became completely black. Jennifer wondered to herself how long she would need to wait. Mrs. Young was quite sure that the footsteps occurred shortly after dark. Hopefully she wouldn't have to wait long. Fortunately, the chair was quite comfortable. Her patience didn't need to be tested for long. Something chittered in the dark, followed by a light scraping sound. Then she heard a faint rumbling sound underneath what sounded like footsteps thumping across the attic floor. Footsteps walking directly toward her. Jennifer held her breath. Who was it? How did they get up here? The footsteps came right up to her and stopped. She heard scratching noises behind her, as if something was scrambling over the stack of cardboard boxes. Something brushed against her ankle. She screamed. There was a rapid scrambling sound. Jennifer jumped up and swiped her phone flashlight to life. There was movement at the far end of the attic, but she didn't see what it was. Her phone pinged with an incoming text message. It was from Emily. Have you been murdered or dismembered or something? She ignored it. Jennifer reached for the dangling chain of the overhead light and turned it back on. She scanned the attic. There was no one there. The door at the bottom of the stairs opened. Are you all right, Dr. Day? Mrs. Young asked. Did you see who it was? I'm fine, Jennifer called down, but didn't want to respond to the other questions until she had some answers. Jennifer flipped out the screen of the camcorder and pressed the rewind button. The recording zipped up by in reverse. Jennifer didn't see any ghostly figures in frame, but didn't expect to. It was her belief that the reason there weren't any conclusive photographs of apparitions was that they couldn't be photographed, at least by traditional chemical or electronic means. She was convinced that when they were visible, it was by a psychic mechanism requiring a human brain to interact with. Hopefully the video revealed some other type of clue. Jennifer hit the play button and studied the grainy black and white infrared video on the small screen. Dr. Day, should we come up? Emily shouted from the bottom of the stairs. Hold on, Jennifer shouted back. As she watched, she noticed a white speck crossing the floor toward the camera. As it got closer, Jennifer could discern that it was some sort of animal, but not a rat. The bushy tail identified it as a squirrel. There was something else, something dark that the squirrel was rolling along the floor. Jennifer looked over at the chair she had been sitting on and the stack of boxes behind it. She moved the chair aside and started taking boxes off the stack. Most of them were empty. When she reached the bottom box, however, there was something inside. As she shook it, it sounded like a box of rocks. Something fell out of a squirrel-sized hole in the bottom. A handful of walnuts. Jennifer bent over and picked one of them up. It didn't look like the walnuts in the shell you'd buy at the grocery store. It still had a mottled green fruit around the large pit that was the actual nut. Then she looked down at the floor. It wasn't covered with plywood, but rather floorboards that over the years had warped and separated. Curious, she bent down and gently rolled the walnut across the floor. As it hit the edge of each floorboard, it popped up into the air and landed noisily as it continued rolling toward the next one, sounding surprisingly like footsteps walking across the attic. Oh my God, that's him! Do you see him? Who is it? Mrs. Young shouted from the bottom of the steps. Come on up, Jennifer shouted back. 
Are you sure? No creepy ghosts up there with you? Emily asked for the benefit of Mrs. Young. I'm alone, Dr. Day assured them. Emily appeared at the top of the steps, then nodded to Mrs. Young, who followed her up into the musty open space of the attic. Once they were both there, Jennifer picked up another of the green walnuts at her feet and gently rolled it across the floorboards. Mrs. Young gasped as she heard the sound of the mysterious footsteps recreated by the bouncing nut. Are you sure that's what it was? Jennifer held up the camcorder. I have the culprit on video. There's a squirrel who's been using your attic to store up for the winter. This is so cool, Emily said, uncharacteristically impressed. Oh my, I almost feel silly that I ever was afraid, Mrs. Young said, relieved, transformed from a woman gripped in fear to someone relaxed and calm. How can I ever thank you? she asked. Jennifer shrugged. I'm just glad we could help, the parapsychologist said. Emily cleared her throat. She rubbed her fingers together in a gesture to remind Jennifer that Nate would expect them to return with a paycheck. Although, now that you mention it, there is a matter of a small fee for our time, Jennifer added, smiling uncomfortably. Chapter 2 Nate Rainey sat in his SUV, staring out the window from behind his sunglasses. He wore a sports coat with matching slacks and a dress shirt, but no tie. In his previous line of work as a police detective, he always made sure to be impeccably dressed. But he had somewhat relaxed his personal dress code in the months since an injury had forced him to retire. A younger Asian man sat in the passenger seat. He had a bag of white cheddar popcorn in his lap, and there were open and partially eaten packages of cookies on the dashboard in front of him. Max Lee was Nate's last partner on the job, and had been a steadfast and loyal friend since. You know, Max, you didn't have to come on this stakeout with me. Hey, what are friends for? he asked, grabbing a handful of popcorn and lifting it to his mouth. Nate cringed as he watched Bits escape and drop down into the space between the center console and the seat. Besides, it's my day off, and I hardly see you these days. I've been busy. Well, not too busy to take this case, which you still thank me for getting you, by the way, Max said. I'll thank you when I get paid, Nate replied. Max looked out the window across the street to the dog park they were staking out. He saw a woman walking an Afghan hound enter the park. She was middle-aged, rather attractive, and well-dressed. That's her, Max said, rolling up the top of the popcorn bag and wiping the cheese dust off his hands on Nate's leather seats. He picked up a pair of binoculars. You want to shout it a little bit louder? I don't think she heard you, Nate said. He picked up a camera with a long telephoto lens from his lap and framed the woman and her dog in the camera screen. He started snapping photos. This is exciting, Max whispered. Just like old times, right? The last stakeout we were on was for a case we had been building for two years against one of the city's top crime bosses. Was it? I just remember that was about the time they released the Mega Stuff Oreos. Max reached toward the packet of overstuffed sandwich cookies on the dash, plucked one out and twisted it open. He licked the creamy filling, then tossed the chocolate cookies out the window. I don't know why they don't just sell the filling, Max wondered. It is a mystery, Nate agreed sardonically. He kept his focus on the woman and her dog as she made her way to where a large tree shaded a portion of the park. Standing there was a man and his dog, a lab collie mix. The two of them struck up a conversation while the dogs sniffed each other. Max picked up his binoculars and searched for the woman, spotting her talking to the man beneath the tree. Well, well, he said. Looks like we caught her red-handed. Nate sighed. 
When he had started rainy day investigations with Dr. Day, he knew he might be exposing himself to some unorthodox cases, but he never expected that the work would challenge his credibility. Yet here he was, at a dog park, snapping photos through a telephoto lens of a clandestine rendezvous while Max littered his car with cookie crumbs and popcorn. To make things worse, it appeared the woman's dog was in heat, and the man's mutt was taking full advantage of her condition. Nate clicked off a few more shots. Okay, I think we have enough, he said to Max. Nate twisted around and put the camera into the bag resting on the back seat. The movement sent a twinge of pain up his right shoulder, aggravating the injury that had cost him his career as a police detective. He paused to let the worst of it pass. Max noticed. Shoulder still bugging you, boss? No, it's fine. I just twisted it a little. Want me to drive? Max asked. That would be a hard no, Nate replied. He started the car and pulled away. They didn't have far to go. Nate's client owned a pet shop near the dog park. Luckily, they found a parking spot in front of the store. Nate popped the memory card out of the camera, grabbed a laptop computer, and got out of the car. Max got out on his side. Not a bad day's work, he said, trying to cheer Nate up. Nate grunted. He just wanted to get this over with. Max held the pet shop door open for Nate, then followed his old partner inside. They headed straight for a counter at the back. Nate rang the old-fashioned brass bell sitting on the formica. A man emerged from behind a curtain. He was covered in white fur. Ah, Detective Rainey, Max, I didn't expect to see you so soon. Max patted Nate on the back. Hey, Bert, I told you my boy was the best. Bert seemed nervous. Do I want to know? You might as well see the photos, Nate advised. You pay the same either way. All right, let's get this over with, Bert said. Nate opened his laptop and slid the memory card into a slot on the side. A photo viewing app opened automatically, bringing up the first picture of the woman walking her dog into the park. Oh, Giselle, Bert lamented. Nate tapped the arrow key to advance through the photos. They showed Giselle as she made her way through the park toward the tree and her meeting with the man and his mixed-breed dog. Bert's eyes filled with tears. Do you want me to stop? Nate asked. No, I need to see this, Bert insisted. Be strong, pal, Max urged. Nate scrolled through the photos of the man and the woman laughing jovially with each other, onto the pictures that included the two dogs humping. Bert looked away from the screen, sobbing. I can't believe it. I feel so betrayed. Nate followed the man's gaze to a framed photo on the wall of the shop, a portrait of the Afghan hound. Bert walked over and took the photo down from the wall. I had such plans for you. You were going to be the dam of champions. To be fair, Max interjected, it was your wife that took her to the dog park. I thought I raised her better, Bert replied, shaking his head, placing the photo face down on the counter. I'm very sorry it turned out like this, Nate said, and I hate to appear insensitive at such a moment, but I do need to ask you to settle the bill. He pulled a folded sheet of paper from his inside jacket pocket. As Max told you, my rate is 500 a day plus expenses, but there weren't any expenses for this case, so an even 500 will cover it. You can make the check out to Rainy Day Investigations. Bert took the invoice from Nate and stared at it. Max nudged Nate and whispered in his ear, What do you mean, no expenses? What about my stakeout snacks? Nate ignored Max's question. Wow, the, the whole 500? I mean, how long did it take you to get these photos? Ten, fifteen minutes, tops? That's not the way it works, 
Nate tried to explain. I thought maybe it would be about forty or fifty dollars. Bert looked to Max. I only agreed to hire you as a favor to Max. I could have taken these photos myself for free. Nate shook his head. He was hoping this payday would help offset the humiliation he felt for taking the job in the first place. He was a detective with twenty years of experience who had to stoop to staking out a promiscuous dog. Could things get any worse? You know, Bert, Nate has a dog himself. What do you say we work out some kind of a trade? Max suggested in answer to Nate's silent question. Chapter 3 Nate pulled up to his house and parked. His home was a large, four-bedroom, two-story frame building with a downstairs den which was now an office he shared with Dr. Day. He had inherited it from his great-uncle Bill, who, along with his wife, Lillian, hosted Nate and his cousins there for long weekends and extended summer stays. Bill and Lillian never had children of their own, but enjoyed spoiling all their nieces and nephews whenever possible. After Lillian passed away, Bill found it difficult to live in such a large house by himself and moved to a convalescent home. Nate had been able to afford the property taxes on his detective's salary, but since he'd taken an early disability retirement, money was starting to get tight. Nate had decided to hang out a shingle as a private detective in the hope that his friends in the department might throw some consulting work his way from time to time. His partnership with Jennifer was supposed to round out that business plan, bringing in a steady caseload. Jennifer did have a robust backlog of cases to investigate, but he quickly discovered that most of the people didn't have the means to pay for their services. The divorce cases and corporate background checks he'd been avoiding were looking more and more appealing as his bank account dwindled. Nate noticed that Jennifer's van was not parked in its usual spot. This wasn't one of her teaching days, so he expected to find her here. More importantly, he was hoping the fee they were expecting from her investigation at the young house would offset his own disappointing experience. He walked around to the rear of the SUV and opened the back. There were three giant bags of dog food stacked there. He had been reduced to bartering his services for kibble. The idea of lifting the heavy bags and hauling them into the house was daunting. Dr. Day's graduate assistant, Dave, could bring them in later. Or maybe someone at the gas company would be willing to trade the dog food for the balance of this month's bill. As he approached the house, he became aggravated to see the front door open. Although the storm door was closed, his dog Madge was an accomplished escape artist. She would exploit any opportunity to get outside and explore. Nate opened the door, entered, and let it close loudly, hoping that whomever had left it open would hear him. The living room was empty of any of Dr. Day's college student staff. He crossed through the kitchen to the office he shared with Jennifer at the back of the house. Both rooms were similarly vacant, except for Madge, snoring away in her spot on the couch in the office. Nate stared at the oversized vintage poster of Harry Houdini hanging on one wall, then to the equally large poster across from it of the mysterious professor, Dr. Day's alter ego from her own days as a professional magician. On his side of the large partner's desk that filled most of the room, Nate noticed a check. He breathed a sigh of relief. One of Jennifer's investigations finally paid off. He picked it up and looked at the amount. Instead of the $300 minimum fee he and Dr. Day had agreed on, it was made out for $50. Hey, Detective Rainey, what are you doing here? This is my house, Nate answered. I live here. He turned to face Dave Edwards, who was standing in the doorway to the office holding a hot pocket in one hand while his other arm hugged a stack of binders. The graduate assistant seemed nervous and embarrassed, shuffling his weight from foot to foot, trying to decide if it was better to walk away or not.
Uh, I know, Dave stammered. I meant I thought you would be at your appointment with Dr. Day and your mother. Nate glanced at his watch. Is that today? He asked. Yeah, Dave answered. I put it on your calendar. Nate had completely forgotten that this was the day he was supposed to meet his mother's favorite psychic. He and his mother had frequently fought over the money she spent on mediums, who claimed they were putting her in contact with Nate's deceased father. At the moment, the two of them had reached a state of detente, but it was Nate's ultimate goal to convince his mother that these people were charlatans and frauds. He had agreed to meet the psychic as long as Jennifer was there, too. Insisting on having Dr. Day there was a risk. She truly believed that people could make contact with the dead. But he had also witnessed her debunk a psychic who was trying to bilk a millionaire who was pledging a major donation to the university's anthropology department. Her actions derailed the endowment, along with her already shaky relationship with her dean. That was part of the reason she had moved her operation to Nate's house. Should I call and tell them you're not coming? Dave asked. Nate shook his head. He didn't want to put this off, and with any luck he could make it to the storefront parlor the psychic used in time. No, I'll text them on my way over. Thanks for the reminder, Dave, Nate added. No problem, detective, Dave replied. Nate tossed the check back onto the desk. He would discuss that with Jennifer later. Thank you for listening to Afterlife, a rainy day investigation, on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs fiction podcast. Remember to subscribe, share, rate, and review not only this podcast, but the novel you are currently listening to. The links to Amazon, Audible, and Goodreads are in the description for this episode. You can sign up for the Insomniac's Snoozeletter at bedtimestories.studio and get a free bookmark. And if you want to know more about the Rainy Day Investigations Paranormal Mystery Book Series, visit rainyanday.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. You can find out more about the host of Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs at richhosick.com. Thanks again, and all the very best.